The tomb is empty, rang out in Jerusalem on that first Easter morning. This happened when several women who were followers of Jesus had gone to the tomb with spices to embalm the body. And when they arrived, they found the stone was rolled away and an angel was there. Mark 16, 6 says, but the angel said, don't be so surprised. Aren't you looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified? He isn't here. He, he has come back to life. Look, that's where his body was lying. On Friday, Jesus had been executed and then he was laid in this tomb and now he was alive. Jesus had told his disciples and many others that he would die and then rise on the third day and now it had actually happened. He was crucified as the perfect sinless sacrifice. He went to the cross to pay the price for the sins of the world. He took the punishment for our sins. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You've probably heard that Jesus came and died to forgive the sins of all mankind. But if we're honest, it's hard to imagine at times certain people having their sins forgiven. It's like that drunk uncle who ruins every family gathering or the scammer who drains the bank account of some well-meaning, trusting senior adult or it's the human trafficker who sees women and children as nothing more than commodities to be used. Sometimes their sins are so pronounced and so ingrained in them that they seem like a lost cause. They make no effort to change or to live life in any different way from the sinful quagmire that they've created for themselves. And we find it nearly impossible to believe, truly believe that they could or would ever change. When Richard Nixon was elected president in 1968, he appointed a guy like that. His name was Chuck Colson. He was a young lawyer and he was appointed as the counsel to the president. And Colson quickly gained a reputation as a pit bull, so fiercely loyal to the president that he actually stated that he would walk over his own grandmother in order to get President Nixon reelected in 1972. The Washington Post called him Nixon's dirty tricks man. H.R. Haldeman, who was the chief of staff for Richard Nixon, wrote that Colson encouraged the dark impulses in Nixon's mind. He was a bad influence. Colson was a self-described hatchet man for the president, and he was feared and despised by most who worked inside the beltway there in Washington, D.C. And what's so crazy about all of this is that Chuck Colson himself was so proud of the reputation that he had amassed as a being politically ruthless. That was true until Watergate broke. The scandal broke and Chuck Colson found himself in the center of the storm. And it was during that time that a friend of him gave him a C.S. Lewis book titled Mere Christianity that explores and defends the core beliefs of the Christian faith. That book sparked a series of conversations and encounters that would change Chuck Colson's life. Colson writes, I spent an hour calling out to God describing the night that he spent in his car, sobbing and praying. I did not even know the right words. I simply knew I wanted him. And on August of 1973, the unbelievable happened. Chuck Colson surrendered his life to Jesus. 
And suddenly the lost cause was no longer lost. It's easy to think of people like Chuck Colson or a person who's a drug dealer or maybe even worse, a serial killer. People like that. It's easy to think that they don't deserve forgiveness because of all the terrible, unforgivable things that they've done in their lives. But also, there are many people who put themselves in the category of lost causes. They have this sense that they can't ever be forgiven. They know what they've done. God knows what they've done, but maybe no one else does. And they, in their mind, have deduced that they can't ever be forgiven because of those things in their past. I met a guy named Jim many years ago who told me that he was one of those guys. He said that he believed when he walked into a church building for the very first time, there was a good probability the roof would just collapse because he had done so many horrible things that sure, certainly the judgment of God would be on him. The sins he committed, he was convinced that he wasn't worthy of God's forgiveness. But the truth is that none of us are worthy of God's forgiveness. None of us deserve his forgiveness. Well, the roof didn't cave in when my friend made his first trip into church. And he would later surrender his life to Jesus. And soon after that, he would begin serving as minister to a number of different churches over the second half of his life. A person may not think they're worthy of God's forgiveness, but Jesus says otherwise. There's a great example of this found in an encounter that takes place in the Bible. Jesus meets this woman who most of the people who knew her likely would have agreed that she was a lost cause. She had been living a life so morally repugnant for so long with no signs of changing that most of them had probably given up on her. Her story is found in John, the fourth chapter. We're going to start with verse 3. Listen to what John writes. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. That's Jesus. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now I want to give you a little bit of background before we jump into this story. In verse 4 it says that Jesus went through Samaria, which is an important, an important distinction because most Jews would not have gone the route Jesus did. They would have gone around Samaria. They would have gone on this red line. They would have gone around Samaria, which would have entailed them crossing the Jordan River twice and then following a path on the east side of the Jordan. The Jews would have not followed the blue path, which is the one Jesus took. And the reason for that is because they wanted to avoid the hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Samaritans. This hostility began hundreds of years earlier when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 721 B.C. They then deported the brightest and the best out of this region known as Samaria now. And they repopulated or resettled with foreign 
settlers from five other nations that the Assyrians had conquered. These foreigners brought with them their pagan customs and pagan gods. They intermarried with the Israelites who were left in the land. And when the Jews returned from exile years later, there was deep animosity toward those who were living there still because they'd intermarried and this had compromised their religious beliefs. Because of all of this bad blood, most Jews just avoided Samaria altogether. But Jesus didn't. Story goes on in verse 7 and following. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. This encounter created an awkward moment for this Samaritan woman. You see, a Jewish rabbi meeting with a woman in public was somewhat unheard of. But specifically, a a rabbi talking with a Samaritan woman, that one on its merits was scandalous. This woman probably recognized Jesus when she approached the well because of his Jewish clothing and his possibly from his accent. She probably saw that he was from the Judean region. And it's likely that she avoided him because he was Jewish. And when he spoke to her, it caught her off guard. In every other situation of her life, a Jewish rabbi and a Samaritan woman would never have any interaction with each other, but Jesus was different. And when Jesus asked her for a drink, culturally, she knew what that meant. You see, in their world, giving and receiving water was an invitation to talk. It meant, let's be friends. And she had to be thinking, in what universe would I ever be friends with a Jewish rabbi? So she pushed back on reminding him that there were differences between them. Verse nine again said, how can a Jewish man like you ask a Samaritan woman like me for a drink? Remember the customs here? But he can ask because he is God. And that's important. You see, he isn't concerned with all the issues that separated people, things like race and age and gender. In fact, his point of view is that that's found in Galatians, the third chapter, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now this woman had come to the well for water, yet this stranger promises her living water. Naturally, she's skeptical. I mean, who wouldn't be? She says, you have nothing to draw with in verse 11. She reminded him, you don't even have a bucket one translation renders verse 11. Yet despite her skepticism, Jesus didn't give up on her. He probably pointed toward Jacob's well when he said in verse 13, everyone who drinks this water 
will be thirsty again. You know, the truth is, nothing on this earth truly satisfies our soul. Not even good things. Not fresh water, warm sunshine, a great meal. Not even the love of a godly person can truly satisfy us. Nothing on this earth can quench our spiritual longings. But then in verse 14, Jesus says there is something that can quench those longings. Verse 14, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So what is this living water? Well, on one level, living water would be a fresh flowing source of water, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's using a metaphor here, which refers to the new life in the spirit that Jesus came to give. It contrasts this living water that he offers with these old forms of Judaism, which were represented by the water found in Jacob's well. This woman was willing to settle for a lot less, and Jesus was offering her so much more. While she was happy with temporary satisfaction, a drink of tepid water from a desert well, which was a lot like her life. You see, she had settled for a life with a man who she was with, who easily could have thrown her out at any time. She had settled for far less than what Jesus knew she was worth. Jesus wanted her to experience eternal satisfaction. He knew the things of the flesh will never fully satisfy the longings of the human soul. So here's a key point for us. You have to let go of the temporary to embrace the eternal. Or simply put, let go of the world in order to embrace Jesus. If we are constantly seeking to satisfy our flesh, our spiritual lives will, will eventually atrophy. Romans 8, 6 says, The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Well, the conversation continued between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. In verse 15 and following, it says, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. All of a sudden, the conversation gets very serious. Traditionally, it's believed that the Samaritan woman was a woman of questionable morals. The theory is that she was a woman guilty of sexual sins. Women in that day usually went to the well to draw water 
once in the morning and once in the evening. They went twice during the day. And they went at those times because it was a lot cooler during that part of the day. But this woman came at noon, which was the worst possible time that you could go because of the scorching heat in the desert. If anyone went to get water at this time of the day, you could conclude that they were trying to avoid people. This woman likely came in order to avoid the other women in town who knew all too well about her lifestyle, her reputation. How many times had she seen those side-eye looks or heard the whispers that always stopped the second she looked their way? I mean, she knew they were talking about her, yet it still always hurt her feelings. It was just easier to go to the well at noontime, avoid all this judgment. Besides, she already felt enough guilt and shame over the mistakes that she had made and the numerous times that she had failed God. She may even be one of those people who thought of herself as a lost cause. It's kind of interesting that when this Samaritan woman responds to Jesus, she refers to him as a prophet. And there's two things that she does when she calls him a prophet. The first is she's actually acknowledging her sins. She said, you must be a prophet because you, you, you just got my life exactly right. And the second thing she does is a lot like us. She tries to change the subject by bringing up this doctrinal question so she doesn't have to deal with the real issues of her life with this Jewish prophet. Well, Jesus answers her theological question in verse 21 and following. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. It may come as a surprise, but this is the first time that Jesus has told anyone that he is the Messiah. And it's interesting that he tells it to a Samaritan woman who has a very sketchy past. I can't help but think that he tells this very important piece of information to her as the first person to receive it because he wanted her to know how much he valued her. When the disciples then return they are shocked to see Jesus having a conversation with a Samaritan woman. But none of them bring it up. Then all of a sudden, once they arrive, 
this woman leaves her jar there, forgetting all about her mission to come get water, and she rushes back to town to tell the people of her town about her experience with Jesus. She posed an important question to them. Could this be the one Israel has been waiting for for so long? Well, John gives us a summary of what happened when this woman went back to town and shared about Jesus. It's in verse 39 and following. It says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we, have come, now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. This woman had an unlikely encounter with a Jewish rabbi, but it happened because it was Jesus. And we know he wasn't the typical Jewish rabbi. This encounter not only changed her life, but it changed the lives of many others in her hometown. Never underestimate the ripple effect that can happen when someone is sharing the good news about Jesus. This is a picture in this story, this encounter. It's a picture of God using a woman who many saw as a lost cause. They would never have had anything to do with her in any other situation. But God uses her. He uses her to share the good news, to show the far-reaching power of God's love and his forgiveness. God continues to reach out to those who are far from him, no matter how many times they may reject him or hold him at arm's length. Spencer's story is one of those stories. It's a tremendous example of how God gives us second chances. Let's take a moment and watch his story. So it was raining. Um, I'm driving to work one day after leaving a deal and I'm looking down at the radio and I, I look up and traffic's at a dead stop. And I had no time to react. So I like swerve and and avoid the traffic in front of me, avoid hitting people. And I, I come to a stop in the grassy median. And I just remember sitting there after the car came to a complete stop. I was like, wow, I can't believe nothing happened. And then just like that, I blacked out. I had overdosed on heroin. I can clearly remember sitting in youth group and listening to this guy talk about his addiction and just looking at him like, no, like that's not gonna be me. There's no way I had it all together. But in high school, I developed this need for popularity, this want for attention. And so I did things. Um, I started smoking and drinking and partying. Fast forward to college, and then I'm faced with painkillers. And I didn't wanna be left out. Painkillers eventually led me to heroin. I had rejected it plenty of times, um, but eventually I, I had to cave. 
and I became a heroin addict doing heroin multiple times a day. It was depressing, it was tiring. I was anxious all the time. I had lost every single friend that I had gained. All I saw was this big mountain in front of me and I, I couldn't move it. At the ER, I just remember all these people, nurses and, and people at the desk, they were like, you're so lucky. You're lucky to be alive. You should be thankful. And I was like, yeah, okay. Like, I, yeah, I guess I should be thankful. I just overdosed, but I didn't actually get it. I didn't get why I was lucky to be alive. A few days later, it all sank in when I got the details. A guy by the name of Todd Houston, I didn't know him at the time, but he was there. He was one of the cars in front. He saw the whole thing go down from his rearview mirror. So he gets out of his car and comes over to me and I'm, I'm out in the driver's seat. He starts to do this procedure on me because he recognized immediately that this kid's overdosed. Protocol is to do it two or three times. But he did it two or three times and it didn't work. He later told me that they stop. You're either dead or you're going to be dead. But something in him told him that he needed to keep going. So he did. And so I'm here today, and if, if it ended there, that's a miracle in, it, in and of itself. But it didn't end there because he wasn't even supposed to be there that day. He was driving home from work and, and went away that he didn't drive home from work. He passed up two way better opportunities that had less traffic and less headache. But as he left work that day, he felt like he needed to go this route home. That was the day that God wrecked me. I wrecked my car and I thought my life was screwed up, but he wrecked me and broke my addiction on that day. Like it was done. I spent so much time being ashamed of my addiction because I knew how people looked at drug addicts. They're terrible people, they're not trustworthy, they're controlling and manipulative. But the thing is, God did not look at me that way. He looked down at me in my, my brokenness and my struggle and said, you are worth being loved. Your life is worth living. You're worth me pinning my son to a cross so that I can spend eternity with you. I want you. And it just shows that there's no person that he's not able to change. There's no situation he's unable to move in. And that there's no rock bottom that he's not able to reach. Spencer's story is a great reminder that you and I need to always know God loves you no matter what you've done. Your life matters. If you feel like you're a lost cause, you need to know that Jesus died for lost causes. He wants to spend eternity with them. That's why he came. And that's how important lost causes are to him.
I want you to listen to 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16. Listen very carefully to this passage. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience even with even the worst sinners. Do you know who wrote that? You may know that it was the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote that he was the worst of sinners. Before he became a, a committed Christian in the first century, Paul was a zealot for Judaism. He was going from town to town, arresting those who were part of the movement that Jesus had started. And he would have them arrested and then take them back to Jerusalem where they would be tried, and many of them were executed. Paul played a part in the death of many of the followers of Jesus. What Paul is saying here is this. If God will save Paul, he will save anyone. You know, when I look at the lives of people like the woman at the well or the Apostle Paul, Chuck Colson, even Spencer, I'm reminded of some things that I think are really important for us to focus on. The first is this. No matter how people see you today, remember, everybody has a past. We might be surprised by the sins of those who have had so much influence on us coming to Christ, those who discipled us, those who influenced our walk with the Lord, that might surprise us what was in their past. I know that most of us have become accustomed to wearing masks over this past year, but Actually, some of us have been wearing masks for years, trying to conceal the sins of our past. Remember, everybody has a past. Number two, no matter what you may have done in your past, no one is a lost cause. That is the awesome hope of the Christian message. No soul is too far for God to bring them back. No heart is too hard that God can't soften it. No son or daughter who's a prodigal is too lost for God to be able to rescue them. No amount of sin and no radical level of its offensiveness of sin is too much for the grace of God. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. Whoever is a believer in Christ is a new creation The old way of living has disappeared and a new way of living has come into existence. God will make you new and that's what makes grace so amazing. Point number three. Even though your past may make you feel like the chief of sinners, you can still have a new beginning. It's never too late to start doing the right thing. We say that a lot around here. Don't get stuck on where you were. Don't waste your time focusing on what you used to be. Remember that the forgiveness we receive from Jesus means that there's a brighter tomorrow. Sins are forgiven. Shame is canceled. We are no longer chained to that deep, dark pit known as our past. 
Because God's grace gives us wings that allow us to soar far beyond that. You know, on that first Easter morning, the tomb was found empty. That's because Jesus had risen from the dead. And that, that is what changes everything. He showed he had this power, authority over death. Death no longer has mastery over those who are followers of him, those who have put their faith in him because he conquered death. And this means there's hope for everyone. No matter how much a person may have sinned in their past, they're never too far from God's love and his forgiveness. And that is for everyone. Never forget, there are no lost causes. If you would like to know more about what we've been talking about today, how to receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers, how to, how to find something that will satisfy the longings of your soul. Well, we would, love to, we would love to have the opportunity to share with you. In fact, if you wanna drop a note into the comments, we have people right now who are online who would love to spend some time talking with you and praying with you. Or if you want to, you can go to ncclex.org slash connect and fill out the information and we will follow up with you, spend some time. We welcome that opportunity. In the meantime, let's continue to worship our risen Lord together.
darkness rejoices over lost. But then Jesus arose with our freedom in hell. That's when death was arrested and my life began. Lord, your words, suffering washes to respond online to what God is doing in this place, what God is doing in your home. As we rejoice and as we worship and all that the Lord has done, would you just worship with us today and sing it out.
God is doing something right now. And we are so, so grateful, man, that you've spent Easter with us this Sunday. And let me just say, if God is still working, if he's still moving right now, and you wanna talk with someone, you can do that. Reach out to us right there in the chat, reach out through social, or you can connect with us at ncclex.org connect. And we would love to, to walk alongside you, hear what God is doing, in your life. Because remember, hey, listen, if the resurrection teaches us one thing, we know that it's never too late and it's, you're never too far. And so, hey, we're so glad that you've spent this time with us magnifying the name of Jesus. That hope is here. Hope has a name. 
His name is Jesus. So look, we, we hope you have a great rest of your Easter Sunday. Have a great week and we'll connect with you real soon.